Chapter Four of the Sign of Silence by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Four, Dear Old Dig. I told Edwards nothing of Sir Digby's curious request, of his strange confidences, or of the mysterious letter to E. P. K. which now reposed in a locked drawer in my writing table. My friend, be he impostor or not had always treated me strictly honorably and well. Therefore I did not intend to betray him, although he might be a fugitive hunted by the police. Yet was he a fugitive? Did not his words to me and his marvelous disguise prior to the tragedy imply an intention to disappear? The enigma was indeed beyond solution. At seven o'clock my visitor, finding necessity to revisit Harrington Gardens, I eagerly accompanied him. There is a briskness and brightness in Piccadilly at seven o'clock on a cold, clear winter's night, unequaled in any thoroughfare in the world. On the pavements and in the motor-buses are thousands of London's workers hurrying to their homes in western suburbs, mostly the female employees of the hundreds of shops and workrooms which supply the world's fashions. For, after all, London has now ousted Paris as the centre of the feminine mode. The shops are still gaily lit, the club windows have not yet drawn their blinds, and as motors and taxis flash past eastward, one catches glimpses of pretty women in gay evening gowns accompanied by their male escorts on pleasure bent. The restaurant, the theatre, and the supper, until the unwelcome cry, that cry which resounds at half-past twelve from end to end of Greater London, time please, ladies and gentlemen, time, the pharisaical decree that further harmless merriment is forbidden. How the foreigner laughs at our childish obedience to the decree of the killjoys! And well he may, especially when we know full well that while the good people of the middle class are forced to return to the dullness of a particular suburb, the people of the class above them can sneak in by back doors of unsuspected places and indulge in drinking, gambling, and dancing till daylight. Truly the middle-class Londoner is a meek, obedient person one day however he may revolt piccadilly was particularly bright and gay that night as passing the end of st james's street we sped forward in the taxi towards brompton road and passed the natural history museum to gloucester road on our arrival the door of the flat was opened by a constable without a helmet recognizing the famous inspector he saluted the body of the unknown girl had been removed to the mortuary for a post-mortem examination but nothing else had been moved, and two officers of the C.I.D. were busy making examination for fingerprints. I allowed them to take mine for comparison, but some they found upon the mahogany table and upon the back of a chair were undoubtedly those of the victim himself. The small glass-topped specimen table still lay where it had been overturned, and the fragments of the two green grass flower vases were strewn upon the carpet with the drooping red anemones themselves. Regarding the overturned table, the two detectives held that it had separated the assassin from his victim, that the girl had been chased around it several times before her assailant had thrown it down, suddenly sprung upon her, and delivered the fatal blow full in her chest. "'We've thoroughly examined it for fingerprints, sir,' the elder of the two officers explained to my companion. "'Both on the glass top and on the mahogany edge there are a number of prints of the victim herself.' as well as a number made by another hand. "'A man's?' I asked. "'No, curiously enough, 
it seems to be a woman's was the reply a woman's i thought of that sweet perfume and of the person who had lurked in the shadow of the stairs that's interesting remarked edwards they may be those of the woman who wore green combs in her hair or else of the porter's wife the owner's manservant is away abroad on business for his master we found out answered the man addressed so of late the porter's wife who lives in the basement of the next house has been in the habit of coming in every day and tidying up the room we took her prints this morning and have found quite a lot about the place no added the man emphatically the fingerprints on that little table yonder are not those of the porter's wife but of another woman who's been here recently we only find them upon the door handle and on the edge of the writing table against which the woman must have leaned we'll have them photographed to-morrow the men then showed us the marks in question distinct impressions of small fingertips which they had rendered vivid and undeniable by the application of a finely powdered chalk of a pale green color apparently the two experts had devoted the whole day to the search for fingerprint clues and they had established the fact that two women had been there the victim and another who was she the investigation of the papers in my friend's writing-table had not yet been made inspector edwards had telephoned earlier in the day stating that he would himself go through them therefore exercising every care not to obliterate the three finger marks upon the edge of the table the officers proceeded to break open drawer after drawer and methodically examine the contents while i looked on the work was exciting at any moment we might discover something which would throw light upon the tragedy the grim evidence of which remained in that dark still damp stain upon the carpet the life-blood of the unknown victim already the face of the dead girl had been photographed and would before morning be circulated everywhere in an endeavour to secure identification i had learnt from edwards before noon that morning upon the notice-board outside the bow street police station there had been posted one of those pale buff-coloured bills headed in great bold capitals body found in which the description had been filled in by a clerkish hand and at the bottom a statement that the corpse was lying at the kensington mortuary awaiting identification that she was a lady seen established by her dress her well-kept hands innocent of manual labour by the costly rings and bracelets she was wearing and the fact that in the pocket of her coat was found her purse containing eleven pounds in gold and some silver sir digby's papers promised to be extremely interesting as we cleared the books off a side table and sat down to carefully investigate them the writing-table was a pedestal one with a centre drawer and four drawers on either side the first drawer burst open was the top one on the left and from it edwards drew two bundles of letters each secured by faded pink tape these bundles he handed to me saying see what you think of these mr royal one after another i opened them they were all in the same sprawly handwriting of a woman a woman who simply signed herself Mitty. they were love letters written in the long ago many commencing my darling or dearest and some with dear old dig though it seemed mean of me to peer into the closed chapter of my friend's history i quickly found myself absorbed in them they were the passionate outpourings of a brave but overburdened heart most of them were dated from hotels in the south of england and in ireland and were apparently written at the end of the eighties 
but as no envelopes had been preserved they gave no clue to where the addressee had been at the time. Nearly all were on foreign notepaper, so we agreed that he must have been abroad. As I read, it became apparent that the writer and the addressee had been deeply in love with one another, but the lady's parents had forbidden their marriage, and as, alas, in so many light cases she had been induced to make an odious but wealthier marriage. The man's name was Francis. He is, alas, just the same, she wrote in one letter dated Mount Ephraim Hotel at Tunbridge Wells Thursday. We have nothing in common. He only thinks of his dividends, his stocks and shares, and his business in the city always. I am simply an ornament of his life, a woman who acts as his hostess and relieves him of much trouble in social anxieties. If father had not owed him seventeen thousand pounds he would, I feel certain, never have allowed me to marry him. But I paid my father's debt with my happiness, with my very life, and you, dear old Dig, are the only person who knows the secret of my broken heart. You will be home in London seven weeks from today. I will meet you at the old place at three o'clock on the first of October, where I have much, so very much, to tell you. Father knows now how I hate this dull, impossible life of mine, and how dearly I love your own kind self. I told him so today, and he pities me. I hope you will get this letter before you leave, but I shall watch the movements of your ship, and I shall meet you on the first of October. Till then, adieu, ever your own, Mitty, at the old place. Where was it, I wonder? At what spot had the secret meeting been effected between the man who had returned from abroad and the woman who loved him so well, though she had been forced to become the wife of another? That meeting had taken place more than twenty years ago. What had been its result was shown in the next letter I opened. Written from the Queen's Hotel at Hastings on the 4th of October, the unfortunate Mitty, who seemed to spend her life traveling on the south coast, penned the following in a thin, uncertain hand. Our meeting was a mistake, Dig, a grave mistake. We were watched by somebody in the employ of Francis. When I returned to Tunbridge Wells he taxed me with having met you, described our trysting place, the fountain, and how we had walked and walked until, becoming too tired, we had entered that quiet little restaurant to dine. He has misjudged me horribly. The sneak who watched us must have lied to him, or he would never have spoken to me as he did. He would not have insulted me. That night I left him, and am here alone. Do not come near me. Do not reply to this. It might make matters worse. Though we are parted, Dig, you know I love you and only you. You. Still your own. Mitty. I sat staring at that half-faded letter, taking no heed of what Edwards was saying. The fountain they had met at the fountain and had been seen. Could that spot be the same as mentioned in the mysterious letter left behind by the fugitive Kane after the sudden death of the Englishman away in far-off Peru? Did someone after all the lapse of years go there on every twenty-third of the month at noon wearing a yellow flower to wait for a person who, alas, never came? The thought filled me with romance even though we were at that moment investigating a very remarkable tragedy. Yet surely in no city in this world is there so much romance, so much pathos, 
such whole-hearted love and affection, or such deep and deadly hatred, as in our great palpitating metropolis, where secret assassinations are of daily occurrence, and where the most unpardonable sin is that of being found out. "'What's that you've got hold of?' Edwards asked me, as he crossed the table and bent over me. I started, then recovering myself, for I had no desire that he should know, replied quite coolly, "'Oh, only a few old letters, written long ago in the eighties. Ah, ancient history, eh?' "'Yes,' I replied, packing them together and retying them with a soiled pink tape. "'But have you discovered anything?' "'Well,' he replied with a self-conscious smile, "'I found a letter here which rather alters my theory.' and I saw that he held a piece of grey notepaper in his hand. Here is a note addressed to him as long ago as 1900 in the name of Sir Digby Kemsley. Perhaps, after all, the man who died so mysteriously in Peru was an impostor, and the owner of this place was the real Sir Digby. Exactly my own theory, I declared. But that fountain, he remarked, the fountain mentioned in the letter left behind by the man Kane. We must take immediate steps to identify it, and it must be watched on the twenty-third for the coming of the woman who wears a yellow flower. When we find her we shall be able to discover something very interesting, Mr. Royal. Don't you agree? End of chapter 4 Recording by Tom Weiss Tom's Audiobooks.com